In the large college town of Fremont, Michigan, students are given free chewing gum in a bowling alley. The gum is laced with a substance that causes the teenagers to dance and fight. It's all part of a secret evil criminal organization's plan to take over the world. When some of these students turn up dead, a government agent is sent to investigate. When he dies in a suspicious automobile accident, the government calls on their top agent. He's happily retired but reluctantly agrees to take on the case. He's the sexy and cool gent known as Super Dragon. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'll be your host, Jeff Kelly. And today we're going to talk about a film that was riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000. The film today is Secret Agent Double Dragon. Now, I'm going to talk about the actual film, and Nancy will be here a little later to talk about the way the Mystery Science Theater crew handled it. Now, the first James Bond film was Dr. No from 1962. By 1964, the franchise exploded with its third film, Goldfinger. And then in 65, we had Thunderball. In 66... The secret spy film genre was being copied or parodied all over the globe. There was Michael Caine in the Harry Palmer films, Dean Martin playing Matt Helm, and James Colburn as Derek Flint. And there were parodies, starting with the long-running Carry On series, which did a film called Carry On Spying in 1964. Also in 64, there was the films Hot Enough for June and The Man from Rio. By 67, we had Deadlier Than Male, and perhaps the oddest, O.K. Connery, also known as Operation Kid Brother. This film featured Neil Connery, although they didn't use his voice. And Neil is the brother of Sean Connery, perhaps the most famous James Bond. And it also featured Bernard Lee, M. from the James Bond franchise, and Louise Maxwell, Moneypenny, from the franchise, as well as quite a few others that were in Bond films. One day I'm sure we'll do this on the show. After all, it was also riffed on Mystery Science Theater. Interestingly, Louise Maxwell claimed that she earned more money for Operation Kid Brother than all her appearances in the James Bond franchise. Anyway, our film today is a direct copy of a James Bond film. Secret Agent Super Dragon from 1966. This was an international co-production between Italy, France, and West Germany in what is called a Euro spy film. I read that some people call them spaghetti spy films because I guess spaghetti is something they eat in Italy. Now, Secret Agent Super Dragon wasn't meant as a parody, but was a serious spy film, or as serious as a film could be with the name Secret Agent Super Dragon. Now, there wasn't a lot of information available about the film. It was originally entitled New York Chayama Super Drago, 
which I guess translates to New York Calling Super Dragon. It was directed by a fellow named Giorgio Ferroni, who lived 1908 to 1981. He was an Italian film director who had a very long career. He began directing in 1936 and continued until 1975. Later in life, he directed under the name Calvin Jackson Pageant. I don't know why. And the film seems pretty competently directed for what it is. But you know, it takes a lot of skill as a director to make a spy film thrilling and exciting. Not everyone can direct it in a way that will keep an audience on the edge of their seat. And in my opinion, and my apologies to the Ferroni estate, Giorgio failed on every account here. When you get right down to it, Secret Agent Super Dragon fails on almost every account as far as trying to be a spy film. Though I will say, if you just add a few jokes here and there, this could work as a parody of a spy film, but I don't think that's what he was going for. The film stars Ray Danton as Brian Cooper, a.k.a. Super Dragon. Hello? Yes, it's me, Brian Cooper, talking. How are you? I'm fine. Never felt better. He was a handsome American actor who lived 1931 to 1992. He began as a child actor on radio and, as an adult, moved onto the stage. By 1955, he was making films in Hollywood, such as Chief Crazy Horse from 1955, Too Much Too Soon, and Tarawa Beachhead, both from 1958. His most famous role, however, was The Rise and Fall of Legs Diamond in 1960. He also did a lot of TV work. And he was married to Julie Adams, who you might know as the girl in the white bathing suit in the film Creature from the Black Lagoon. In 1964, he began making films in Europe, which included another Euro spy film he made the year before this called Codename Jaguar, which is also known as The Spy Who Went Into Hell. After this, he continued to make films in Europe, occasionally returning to the U.S. to appear on TV. I guess he's all right in the film. A little dull, maybe. He's no Sean Connery. He's more like a Roger Moore, if you know what I mean. But I would say that if his character comes off flat, it's more in the way this was written and not so much the fault of the actor himself. Marissa Mel plays Charity Farrell. I don't want to kill anybody. Until now, I've done everything for you, even against my will. You have got to keep your promise and free me from this drug. Marissa lived from 1939 to 1992, and she was an Austrian actress who was often typecast as the femme fatale. She had a long career, mostly in European films. She was the star of Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic, which was the final film riffed on the original Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now, according to the opening credits of Secret Agent Super Dragon, she was in the film by special arrangement, though I don't know what that arrangement was. Margaret Lee plays Cynthia Fulton. She's the one who gets thrown into the pool at the beginning of the film, and I must say, I loved her hair in this film. Women just don't do their hair like that anymore. How'd you ever find me here, huh? <laughs> Do your horrible yoga exercises permit you to kiss me? Oh, not exactly. This is for comfort. And this? <gasps> oh, let me go! Brian! Oh! She was born in 1943 and, as of the recording of this podcast, is still alive. 
She's a British actress who was a popular leading lady in the 60s and 70s. Her first film was from 62, and it was called Fire Monsters Against the Son of Hercules. She did a couple of Euro spy films the year before Super Dragon, Our Agent Tiger, and Agent 077 from the Orient with Fury. And she also appeared in one the same year as Super Dragon called Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die. By the early 70s, she had moved on to exploitation films, such as the sleazy and violent thriller Slaughter Hotel from 71. Babyface was played by Jess Hahn, who lived from 1921 to 1998. He was an American-French actor who mostly starred in French films. Baby, here I am. Baby, you old warhorse, how are you? <laughs> Hey, you're, uh, you're getting a little fat living up there, aren't you? <laughs> you know how it is. You go soft up in Sing Sing. I need a vacation. Things make it hot. It's better than being on ice. His hmm. career lasted from 1953 to 1987. From all the films that he did, only two I recognized, and that was Orson Welles' The Trial from 62 and Woody Allen's What's New Pussycat from 65. Babyface in the film is basically a low-rent cue, providing Super Dragon with a bunch of gadgets. The big difference is Babyface was in Sing Sing prison and Super Dragon had to insist on him being let out to help. So we begin with our hero, Ray Danton, a handsome, smooth, and suave government agent, meditating by the pool. Suddenly, a mysterious woman, all dressed in pink, appears and for a moment we believe that she might kill him but we find out she's really there to convince him to come out of retirement. We need Super Dragon. Oh, no, no. Super Dragon no longer exists. I'm just playing Brian Cooper now, but I'm listening. Go ahead. Of course, that's after she removes her dress and is thrown into a swimming pool wearing just her white underclothes. Now, Super Dragon has no desire to re-enter government work until he learns that a fellow spy, a friend of his, has been killed while investigating some strange deaths of college students in Fremont, Michigan, which, they claim, is a large college town. Our hero goes on the job, and, well, he's cool at all times, and, and he's always ready with a quip, even if his quips are quite lame. And, of course, no female can resist his charm, although, compared to Bond, he doesn't bet a lot of women. Now he ends up battling an evil and secret organization that is drugging people for world domination. <laughs> Isn't that the way it always is? And they're using poisoned chewing gum and a psychotropic drug called Synchron 2, which they smuggle into the country in phony manga vases. Now what I love about this movie is that it hits all the spy cliches. You know, the quips, the gadgets the beautiful female spies, and even cyanide pills. It's all there. But uh, don't get me wrong here. It's not a good movie, not at all. Yet, in some strange way, I enjoyed watching it. Now, if you watch this film on Mystery Science Theater 3000, the plot might not have made a lot of sense. Well, first, it's a 1960s spy film, so it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. But here's the thing, it makes less sense on MST3K because, well, for time, they made a few cuts. In the MST3K version, 
there's a scene where Super Dragon finds a note hidden in a cuckoo clock. And then it cuts for the break, and when we return, he's questioning a bartender about the poisoned chewing gum. But in the actual film, we see him read the note, and that takes him to a bowling alley, I assume in Michigan, where he sees the bartender give the kids the free chewing gum. I've analyzed. Taken from Ross's bowling alley, Marlborough Street. Let me have one of those. Yeah, they're good. Give me one of those two. Chewing gum. On the house. Really? That's great. Gee, thanks. Great. Thank you. They dance like kids in the 60s do, you know, pretty girls in tight sweaters jiggling what they have. And then he goes to a school where he witnesses a crazy fight between a couple of girls during a basketball game. One of the girls collapses and has to be taken to the hospital. This scene lasts almost five minutes. And that explains why he questions the bartender about the chewing gum. There's a two-minute scene that's cut where Super Dragon follows the girl into a windmill souvenir shop and they have a conversation. Babyface is there and he takes a picture of the bad guy through a window. This leads to the next scene that was shown on Mystery Science Theater where Super Dragon is showing Charity the picture. And, of course, both versions end with the comment about her red hair. I think we'll get along all right. Anything else? Yes, one little thing. Are you a natural redhead? You'll have to take my word for it. For now. There's another scene that's about five minutes that was cut, in which our hero sees the bad guy in a phone booth. They stare at each other for a moment, and then Super Dragon follows the girl. This results into a fight with a few bad guys, a couple of them die, and Dragon ends up almost getting his head crushed by a piece of machinery. I don't want to spoil it for you, but he escapes at the last minute. There's a few other cuts, nothing that's important to the plot. Things like the redhead hailing a cab or Super Dragon walking through a party. But one of the biggest cuts is at the end. You see, after our hero gets information by electrocuting the evil scientist, MST cuts to the final showdown with the bad guy. What's missing is almost eight and a half minutes in which he confronts the bad guy in an office to get the formula. How very nice to see you. I'm really honored. Evidently, you aren't ready to admit that our little game is over. Well, let's say I feel I've won the first round and I've come here for the second. I'm glad to see you realize that I still hold the winning hand. That's true. In a way. Any way you look at it. Very interesting ideal you have, the destruction of the human race. No, I don't want destruction, but salvation. 
A few million lives don't count at all when you're undertaking the creation of a new order to make mankind realize that only obedience brings happiness. That's not a very new idea, is it? Others before you have had it, and you know how they ended up, don't you? <laughs> you're convinced that I'm crazy, because my idea of the world reaches ahead to another dimension. It's way beyond your understanding. Somehow that news fails to disturb me. He ends up being trapped in the building, which is about to blow up. Luckily, Babyface shows up in a helicopter and a rope ladder. Oh, did I spoil that again? Now, I only found one version of the actual film that I could watch, and that was on Amazon Prime. And for some reason, it has the very end cut off. So I hope Nancy doesn't mind, because I'm going to talk about the end of the film they showed on Mystery Science Theater, because it's so bizarre. Super Dragon throws his communication watch out the window to a pool below. Now, oddly, we cut to a hand gently putting the watch into the pool, and then we see it sink. This is odd, and my only thought was the editor was supposed to cut the hand out of the scene, so we just see the watch sinking in the pool, a continuation of it being thrown out the window. But somebody apparently didn't get the memo. You know, I might have enjoyed watching this film without the MST3K treatment as much as with. It's almost like they made a parody of the spy film unintentionally. Anyway, you know, I've talked about this film long enough. Now Nancy is going to talk about how those folks at Mystery Science Theater, Joel, Crow, and Tom, handle this film. Or should I say trash this film? Take it away, Nancy. First off, apologies for my voice this week. Gordon managed to bring home a cold from work last week, and I caught it just in time for Thanksgiving. It's my first cold in almost three years, and it's a doozy. Take your C and D3, folks. Now, on to this week's MST3K gem. Episode 504, Secret Agent Super Dragon. As Jeff has most likely already covered, the very thin plot of this thing is that some evil person or persons is drugging college students in the upper Midwest, and apparently only secret agent Super Dragon can save the day. There's never even one scene of this terrible situation. This lazy movie is big on tell versus show. But anyway, somehow a bunch of doped-up college kids is just step one in conquering the world, or something. For the intro, the bots have made Joel a little friend. It's Minsky, the annoying robot. He repeats his catchphrase, I am the atomic-powered robot. Please give my best wishes. Fifteen seconds to commercial sign, and keep that thing out of my hair. Okay. And that's it. After a few seconds, Joel has pretty much had enough. Guys, do you think we could turn that off now? I'm kind of getting a headache. Nope, he's a new form of life and he doesn't have an off switch. It's yours now, Joel, to steward, to nurture. After Mike Nelson took over the Stranded in Space job a mere nine episodes after this one, the invention exchange was gradually phased out, as Joel was really the prop comedy guy. Since this is a Joel episode, the invention exchange is still in full flower. When the scene opens, 
Joel is totally not trying to destroy Minsky with an improvised quarterstaff. Down in Deep 13, Frank is home alone and takes on the invention exchange solo. He's invented virtual comedy, sure to be a hit with the kids and their virtual reality devices. Sadly for Frank, Dr. F returns in the middle of his material and adds in some hecklers and a tough audience. Poor Frank. All this adulation can't be too good for Frank. Let's see how he deals with a couple of drunken hecklers. Oh, what else? Oh, well, I went to visit my mother. That's always a good thing to do. On the way there, I got pulled over by some cops. God, I hate the... Huh? You're not funny. In the amazing Colossal Episode Guide entry for this episode, Mary Jo Peel writes... The virtual reality comedy club sketch was a bit of exorcism for many of us writers. Many of us had experienced the world of stand-up comedy to one degree or another, and we had a lot of material for this sketch, some more painful than the rest. Now I'd like to point out here how much I love Dr. Forrester's get-up in this scene. Returning from a class reunion, he's in full 1920s 23 Skidoo collegiate regalia, complete with raccoon coat, straw boater, leather suitcase, and a football pennant. This is the kind of detail which the MST reboot is completely devoid of, going all in on current pop culture instead. These old nods to pop culture of the past 100 years or so is what makes original recipe MST so satisfying. I'll probably harp on this again in future episodes. Continuing the invention exchange back up on the SOL, Joel and the bots have had enough of the misnomer mini-golf. Is it really miniature? And have gone one better with micro-golf. All you need is a microscope and a set of golf courses, each on individual slides, made from lush E. coli. This shot is a bit trickier than it looks, what with the lymphatic plasma to the left and the green sloping towards the nucleoli. All right, I'm lying in the pernicious anemia culture. I'm going to use my pitching wedge to loft it. Oh, the wheels really are coming off. Ugh. There they go. What do you think, sirs? Point zero zero Just as in the delightful Danger Death Ray, the secret agent office has to send sexy lady agents all in pink to round up our hero for a job, because apparently a phone call just won't do. With this trope, we get our first spy girl, who I can't help but think of as Spy Barbie, what with her pink outfits, giant blonde hair, super thick false eyelashes, and troweled-on eyeliner. Mr. Dragon is on vacation, or retired, or something, and doesn't want the job, but he soon learns that a couple of other agents have already tried to work the case and turned up dead. In a weirdly tone-deaf scene, he interviews some kind of law officer in the town where one of the other agents, a personal friend, was killed, and picks up the deceased agent's personal effects. Not since Agent for Harm has a public official found death so amusing. This is everything Jackson had with him. <laughs> personal effects make me happy. To his apartment. I know my job, eh? <laughs> I'll be saving you money. Well, sure, I've got a six-month CD and an I... Hey! In keeping with the weird timeline and seemingly random editing in this movie, the agent Super Dragon then goes to Secret Agent HQ to discuss the case with his boss and be briefed on his assignment. Turns out the drug is being administered via chewing gum. 
How many have taken a dose of this poison without knowing it? And why is the drug being handed out among minors? There must be an ulterior motive. Is this part of my review? That's what we've got to find out. What is it? What are they after? Uh, delicious fruit flavor, oh. sir? For some reason, Mr. Dragon demands as his partner some character currently doing time in Sing Sing. He turns out to be a stocky jokester with a case full of gadgets, a kind of budget cue. In a good movie, he'd probably be played by Ernest Borgnine. One, a two, a one, two, three, four. In the second host segment, Joel and the bots form a hip jazz combo so they can perform some of the incidental music from Secret Agent Super Dragon. Joel spices it up with spy movie sound effects. It gets weird. Tom doesn't approve. Just keep playing and singing like you were, and I'll add some spice. Trust okay, me. Okay, from the top it is. Secret agent. Super dragon. Yeah, with action. Secret agent. Super dragon. With romance. The next chunk of the movie is Super Dragon and his sidekick decamping to Amsterdam, where we are overwhelmed by the quaint Dutch culture. Dragon meets more girls, gets gadgets from his sidekick, and kills the occasional baddie using questionable means. In the third host segment, it's time for another table read of a Crow T. Robot original screenplay, this one titled aptly, The Spy Who Hugged Me. Huh. Uh, Joel, you'll be reading a couple of parts if you would. Sandy's love interest, Holly Affirmations, and the bad guy, Gary Diabolique. For God's sake, man, I want to drink martinis in Istanbul and utter glib bon mots in Moscow and dry with my feet while escaping thugs in Monte Carlo and meet girls in Eponema, the kind of things a super secret super spy is supposed to do. I support your owning those feelings. I support this. Crow, in an attempt to channel 90s sensibilities, has put a Hallmark-esque cozy romance spin on the spy genre, and it's a cornucopia of touchy-feely psychobabble. Top of page 12, Joel, you're Holly. Okay. <clears throat> you understand, Mr. Wyndham Hill, that even though we are sharing a sexual tension between us, I must kill you. Um, Holly, thank you for being honest. Let me say that I think you're a really terrific dynamite lady, but right now I'm in a committed relationship with someone who's very special to me. I don't believe this. Okay, Holly pulls a gun out of her purse. I'll oh, use my please. hand and says, Then you understand, Mr. Wyndham Hill. Nothing personal. Uh, boundaries, Holly. Boundaries. Oh, crow, I'm supposed to be a man who leads a life of danger. Servo, the only way around it is through it. So, Back in the movie, we get our first long, long look at our bad guys with an overdone Get Smart-style entrance to the bad guy HQ, complete with a long haul tricked out with sliding doors, body scanners, cameras, and whatnot. Dun, dun. <laughs> Honestly, it kind of looks like the MST hallway sequences, only not as good. Could something please just happen? In keeping with the let's just throw together some random Bond-like scenes and call it a movie vibe in this movie, the music direction is kind of slapdash too. I know editing and sound design were a lot harder back in ye old analog days, but that didn't stop David Lean from making Lawrence of Arabia. It's like they threw darts at a bunch of 3x5 cards taped to a wall, each card with titles like 
jazzy dance music, suspenseful sting, tension builder, or Hanna-Barbera type goofy riff. Let's see, our hero is sneaking around in an ominous cellar at night. Okay, throw a dart. Peppy jazz music? Okay, whatever. A Screen Gems presentation. You know, the other apartments I've snooped around are much nicer than this. Wow, this is a swinging boiler room. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Then, when our hero gets jumped by some heavies, nothing. Zero music for the whole fight scene. Did they run out of darts? I'm sure Jeff is covering this aspect of the movie, but the plot is really sketchy, as in bare bones. The edits needed for the MST format probably don't help because we seem to leap from scene to scene with no motivation or logic. After a particularly vague bit of dialogue between Dragon, Babyface, his sidekick, and Spy Barbie, Tom cries, It might really help if they'd let us in on the plot, mm -hmm. I think. In the fourth host segment, Tom and Crow have questions about how one becomes a super-secret agent. And Joel explains super-secret spy school. And I have a question. I was hoping this was headed somewhere. How come this guy keeps saying confusing stuff? Like, uh, the time he gets jumped, which is obviously a bad thing, he said they gave me a real warm reception. Yeah. Oh, well, they all go to super-secret spy school. That's where they learn to hone their precise skills, like yeah. how to simultaneously attract and repel the opposite sex, the virtues of doing espionage in Monte Carlo mm -hmm. as opposed to Little Shoot, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. what makes turtlenecks so darn cool, mm -hmm. and most importantly, they take a course called post-kill puns. Mm -hmm. And that's where you learn to say things like, we went for a little swim, which means, they tried to drown me. Oh, now that's a cool class. Tell yeah, me more. Sure. Oh, yeah, they've got one hard and fast rule there, is you can't kill anyone unless you got a pun. Uh -huh. Shooting someone is out. Mm. Instead, it'd be more apropos to, like, push someone into the lion's den and say, he went out for a bite. Oh, or run someone over with a steamroller and say he was pressed for time. Right, yeah. like that. Or, or how about um, push a gal out of a plane and then say, oh, she just stepped out. <laughs> right, and then there's always the classic, I was all tied up, which means I, I was, was all tied up. up. Right. <laughs> you know, guys, I just realized that being a spy is one of the only times when a pun is actually acceptable. Yeah, ironically, death actually softens the blow of the pun. True. Meanwhile, back in the movie, we're treated to the obligatory cat and mouse at the casino slash masked ball slash auction scene. I think this is mostly to get our hero into black tie and the girls into slinky dresses. Super Dragon wrangles his way into the bad guy boardroom, where he learns that the bad guy consortium is convinced that their Synchron 2 drug is ready to help them take over the world somehow. What you have seen is only an example of the efficiency of Synchron 2. Whenever we choose to use it, then victory will be ours. Victory over what? Yes, gentlemen. The victory will indeed be ours. Ours the victory will be. We are going to change the course of human life. The ending is about what you'd expect. It's pretty tame and anticlimactic, sadly. The gist is, the good guy wins, the bad guy dies, and gal pal secret agent Barbie is kind of left high and dry. The final host segment is Dr. Forrester's promised super villain conference, or rather conference call. These were the days before video conferencing, folks. 
Forrester has it down to 90s boardroom perfection. PowerPoint is for sissies. This is solid whiteboard action. We start with TV's Frank bringing in the tea tray. Well, thank you for coming by today. Our topic is supervillains, and I think I'd like to open it up to question and answer. Well, thank you, Frank. Whatever. Can I get some cream? No. Great. Joel? Joel and the bots want to know why the big bad guy in this movie is so unmemorable. Dr. F has an answer. No exotic pet. Ah, very good. Well, perhaps one reason why this supervillain failed and I believe the 1971 Dr. No monograph will back me up here, is that he did not possess a strange or rare animal. I can't be too strong on this point. Either four legs or two, every supervillain must have an animal. To round things off, our stinger is a clip of Dragon's sidekick being pounced on in the dark by a sprightly thug. In keeping with the odd musical choices, this very haikiba moment is underscored by an inappropriate marimba glissando. Oh well, at least the filmmakers were consistent. Immediately adjacent to Hickam Field is Pearl Harbor the Navy's $100 million fist. Here on this morning of a tragic day of reckoning, capital ships, heavy and light cruisers, lay at anchor. At anchor, too, lay several destroyers, tenders, minesweepers, and repair ships, 86 vessels in all. By 7 o'clock, the city began to stir. For the most part, the atmosphere was serene and quiet. As Hickam Field, ground crews were at work. On a dock in Pearl Harbor, a few Blue Jackets idled away a few minutes. At Kaneohe, a field mass was being held. A little bit before I go. First of all, Nancy, your um, voice didn't sound too bad. I think, I think you did a good job of covering up your cold. Second of all, yeah, there was about 20 minutes cut out of the film for Mystery Science Theater, including a whole five-minute scene at the college, which you mentioned was confusing on MST, and that could be why. There were other little bits here and there cut out that would have tied things together. And like I said, an eight-minute ending scene, which was cut out. But yes, still, the movie had a very thin plot and wasn't very good. And I was thinking, when you mentioned the film Agent from Harm, we could have done a whole show just on the bad secret agent films done on Mystery Science Theater. This one, Agent from Harm... Danger Death Ray, which is one of my favorite episodes, and even Codename Diamond Head. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening this year. Like I said, I'm taking December off. Nancy and Gordon, I thank you both for filling in when I want to take time off. It's fantastic. I think Nancy and Gordon are going to do a film called December 7th, Attack on Pearl Harbor. I think it's a short done by John Ford. At least that clip I just played, that's what it was. I don't know, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with it, so I'll be just as excited as everybody to listen to what they have to say about it. And, uh, and to Nancy and Gordon, I hope you both are feeling better. I've been pretty good on the cold front lately, but I did get COVID a few months ago, and that was like a really bad cold. I hope both of you guys managed to have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and everybody out there, for those of you in America, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving as well. Now listen up. 
we have a Facebook page. You should right now go ahead and join the Facebook page and leave a comment. You can also do that on Twitter. We have a Twitter account, at Celluloid underscore Days. We're always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. You can email me at daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Hey, just email me and say hi. I'd appreciate it. If you could give me a review at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Again, thank you for listening. I'll be back next year with new shows. Our first show in January, we're going to do another episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, and we're going to tackle Ed Wood because I want to talk about the real Ed Wood. Take care. Stay healthy. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can.